Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. Hello and welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. I'm Richard Martin, sitting in for Matthew Hexter, who's recovering from a long weekend at Labour Party conference. And Kerry is here as well. Evening, Rich. And joining us this evening are three guests. Darren Chetty, who is a writer from Swansea. He's author of What is Masculinity? Why Does It Matter? and Other Big Questions. How to Disagree, Negotiate Difference in a Divided World and The Good Immigrant. Hello, Darren. Hello, nice to be here. Thanks very much. And also we have Martin Johns, who is a historian of modern Wales at Swansea University and of popular culture in modern Britain with published books and articles that look at sport, politics, race, national identity, pop music, disasters and local government, though disasters and local government may be one and the same thing. Hello, Martin. Hi. And completing our panel, Rabab Khazul, who is a socially engaged visual artist and curator and founder director of Gentle Radical. Hello, Rabab. Hi there. So we have our panel here this evening to discuss a new book, and that book is Welsh Plural. And it challenges readers to imagine whether Wales and the Welsh are something both distinct and inclusive. So to start us off, Kerry. Evening, everyone. Thanks for joining us tonight. Darren, can you just talk us through what was the thinking behind the book? Uh, in, in 2019, I was one of the Hay Writers at Work. It was a scheme for, for Welsh writers. I'd already written a draft of what became my essay in the book. Uh, where I was sort of reflecting on my, my childhood in Swansea. The really exciting bit about being at Hay was to talk with other Welsh writers and really reflect on two things. One was how little attention there seemed to be on Welsh writers at Hay, or indeed, you know, in, in the UK broadly, compared to Irish and Scottish writers, and what that meant for Wales, that there didn't seem to be this clear identity of, of Welsh literature. And the other question really was, I guess in part provoked by my, my essay, was about what exactly we mean by Welshness and to what extent Welshness is this sort of idea of being able to trace your back your grandparents and, and further to Wales and who, who gets left out with those sort of definitions of Welshness and, and whether, you know, with the background of sort of in, a burgeoning in, interest in independence, whether Welshness in, in that way sort of runs the risk of being very blood and soil and actually being a rather exclusionary idea and, uh, and, and as a political project, uh, one that's kind of doomed. So it was that sort of discussion of what, what does it mean to be Welsh, to, for Welshness to be distinct and inclusive at the same time? And what does it mean to, to talk about Welsh literature that I guess uh, motivated us? As, as, a, as a hay boy, I totally resonate with that kind of Welshness at uh, the Hay Festival. It's long been something you'll find many people would agree with on that, but uh, it is still a fantastic occasion. So uh, really pleased to hear that uh, you were one of the writers there. The essays tackle a whole range of issues from modern Wales, from nature, uh, history, race to language. Some of the some of the essays on race were actually I found quite difficult to read at times. Is the book trying to address these issue, issues or simply place them in modern Wales? Rabar, do, do you have a view on how the book was looking at those issues? That might be a question for Darren. Darren, um, however. You used two words there. The distinction between those are kind of interesting because the addressing of something is a kind of placing of it. It's about finding our space. 
finding uh, where we locate ourselves within those issues. I think the placing of things and the addressing of things are very unfixed. I think they're quite, they're processes in the way that trying to address one's identity or place in the world is, is, a, is, is unfixed. And what I think is really powerful perhaps about this book and the different voices within it is this sense of dialogues and conversations in process. I think they're quite live. They're quite unfixed. They are, I think the voices that are coming through are trying to almost locate a fluidity about not only notions of identity, but our, our sense of what we're grasping at, which, is, which feels very unfixed in that sense. So I think the idea of addressing something perhaps is about opening up spaces and their multiple spaces. It's a little bit like a Venn diagram. I think each of us have Venn diagrams within ourselves. And I think this publication is a, a form of Venn diagram across a lot of different people with overlapping interests uh, who are very different in their voices, but all, I think, also overlap in multiple ways. The book's title um, comes from the now infamous Wales's uh, single noun plural experience. Who came up with the title and why did that seem to sum up what you plan to do with the book? If you chose the title before you published the book or um, if you chose the title right at the end, why did it sum up what you'd done? Uh, the editing team, uh, so myself, uh, Greg Muse, Hanani, so yes in time, you know, we, we thought that this was a good title for capturing, as you say, it's building on Dye Smith's uh, Wales as a single noun with a plural experience. It's probably, from what I've read of, of, of Dye Smith's work, taking that perhaps further than he had in mind at the time. But I like this idea of, of uh, I mean, it's a theme in the book of sort of building on tradition, but also at times moving away from or innovating. So it seemed in keeping there. Um, to point out that, you know, Wales and Welshness is is plural in all kinds of ways, including plurality of identity, even national identity. And for someone like me, you know, I, as I say, I was born in Swansea. I've lived most of my life outside of Wales, uh, but still consider myself Welsh, but at the same time also consider myself Indian, South African, Dutch, a Londoner. So I think Welshness can be part of a plurality as well. And that might not be the same for everyone who contributed, but what was really interesting when the essays were coming in was how many people in some way had a sense of falling short of some sort of platonic ideal of Welshness. They, they weren't as, as Welsh as they could be or should be or others were. And that wasn't simply the, the eight people of colour in the book. That was that was also the, the, the white, you know, the white Welsh contributors that, that there was something about Welshness. I've spoken a little bit to Martin about this. And he, if I remember correctly, Martin, your, your take was that Wales, by virtue of not being a nation state, that what, what Welshness is, this becomes that bit more important to sort of guard and aspire to. Have I captured that correctly or am I off the mark? Yeah, I mean, I think Wales has a very, very long history of worrying about what it is. Um, I mean, that's not unique. And I think sometimes in Wales that we beat ourselves up over some of these issues. But I think, you know, many different nations and cultures go through this. But in Wales, you know, a country that was, you know, essentially conquered 800 odd years ago, um, that there isn't a nation state and in many ways never has been. You know, these things are particularly pertinent. You know, Wales is a very small corner of the United Kingdom with a very big neighbour. And that has created tensions and issues within Welsh culture as people kind of worry and question, you know, what is it to be Welsh? What, what should it be to be Welsh? 
And there are no right answers to this. And, you know, but for me, this was it really interesting about this book is the uncertainty. I don't think it is offering answers about what it means to be Welsh beyond there are lots of different ways of being Welsh. But in its in itself, by saying that there's no right way of doing it, um, in saying we all worry about who we are, we all we're all maybe even a little bit defensive about it. That in itself is is almost empowering because you know if you if we feel we have to hold up to some kind of ideal, you know we'll 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 never do it. But by by admitting it's okay to be uncertain, it's okay to not have the answers. That in itself is a really positive, empowering message. I think. If I can be slightly play somewhat devil's advocate, I mean, I think one of the interesting things is someone like myself, brought up in southeast Wales in the late seventies and early eighties. I think the very concept of whether Wales and Welshness exists is quite an interesting to kind of launch off from, because when I was young, the idea there was no there was no political Wales, there was no commonality necessarily of the people of Doivor as there was Caswent in um, down in the southeast. We just kind of didn't really have a state. We we didn't have a political unifier. We, the only time we were unified was on the sporting field and even then we couldn't agree which our national sport was so I just wonder I mean what what assumptions are there behind the idea that Wales and Welshness actually exists or are we as I think one of you write in your essays might be Martin's essay we actually choosing to create it well Wales does exist because people think it exists it's it's an idea but but all all nations are ideas in in a sense nation states emerge out of those ideas once a country becomes a nation state, then it does work towards kind of strengthening that, strengthening that, but they don't kind of invent them out of nothing. Again, I don't think we should beat ourselves up over these things. These, this is just how national identity works. It's an abstract idea. And people get very defensive when you say that because somehow it's implying it's not real. But if people feel something, if it's people feel an emotional connection to something, that makes it real. And you know, if there's one kind of clear thing that Welsh history shows is that for centuries, people have felt Welsh and it's meant something to them. It hasn't always meant the same thing. They've argued about that. They've worried about that. But it has meant something to people. And that means it is very real, regardless of whether there's a state or an institution. Um, one of the things I think we want to do tonight is, is to look at that book as a whole. But as you've all joined us uh, and we appreciate that, we'd like to ask you to just look at each of your individual contributions to the book. If you'd like to talk us through those essays, as it were. So, uh, Rabbi, if I can start with yours, it, your collection concludes the, the anthology and really it, it suggests that you're not, you're, there's an apology for not being able to write an essay as it were, because of ADD. Like, how did you approach that piece? Well, with difficulty. <laughs> I think, um, I suppose having a kind of ADHD-wide brain, it's, it's always a real challenge for me. I said yes to the invitation from, I think it was Hanan originally, and anyway, the editors as a whole. And I tried to write and I'm not I'm not a you know I'm not a I'm not I wouldn't even say I'm a writer let alone a prolific writer so I, I love text and language and words and it actually funnily enough emerges a lot within my creative practice within my visual arts practice and I think you know um rather than having a notebook or a, a, a sketchbook I often have a notebook so I'm always language is very much embedded in my practice but writing essays is perhaps not so I think I I 
really found myself struggling after a while because uh, kind of classic tendency of the kind of ADHD wide brain is you just generate, 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 produce vast amounts of material and the actual function of editing does not come naturally. And I think, I don't know how many emails I wrote to Darren it was just going, I think I'm going to check out now. I'm really sorry about this. I'm really struggling with this process. Um, but there's a few people who just kind of continued encouraging me and I just really didn't want to be beaten by the process. I think there was a sort of shift at some point where I, I realized I wanted to start writing about the difficulties about writing. I wanted to start writing about the difficulties of trying to hold in your mind multiple thoughts and, and the quality of my experience of being in my own mind, which is not a unique one, and how that started to help me in a way map that experience onto the quality of what it means to ask yourself who you are or what it means to live somewhere or to have chosen a home somewhere or an adopted home or to understand your sense of identity or the fracture within your own kind of sense of lineage. Um, and that gradually started to feel like an honest and authentic way to find my way into this piece of writing, which is the kind of fractures and the fragmentation of how I'm often thinking perhaps had a resonance for the way I think about identity as a kind of British, Iraqi, non-Muslim, Wales-based, kind of morsel-raised, you know, non-religious, but deeply spiritual, you know, kind of a number of things that I feel have I've adopted in my life. And I think that's often how we build a sense of identity in diaspora. The things that feel like perhaps more grounded, a sense of place, a sense of lineage, a sense of ancestry. Um, I think that dislocation from place and homeland for me leaves my sense of self very live and very shifting. There's one bit in the book that kind of stuck me, particularly as we're recording in March uh, 2022, and you talk a, a little bit uh, about your childhood home. Uh, and that being handed over, oh, ISIS demanding that they hand over the keys to the house. And, you know, you later receive a photograph of the old house gutted, burnt and lost for good. And then it's followed by a, a single sentence on its own. That's actually three sentences, sorry. Um, the grief of my nation, the grief of yours, tell me how are we to heal it? And it's very difficult not to read that and think not just of the crisis in Ukraine that we're seeing at the moment, but all of the similar crises where people are displaced en masse in their hundreds, thousands, millions, etc. I was just wondering, when you ask that question, tell me how to heal it, do you have any ideas? Because there will be so many people who finish this year lost without the home that they once had. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, first of all, just to say that, like, the house I grew up in was one of many, many houses in, in Mosul, uh, where literally ISIS, um, when they took over the city, pretty much, um, just, you know, kind of like, like gangsters, you, you know, you had to hand over the keys of the house. And how fortunate are we? I mean, huge privilege to, to be safe, to be in the UK for many, many decades. That house still stood. I think, um, you know, partly it was being rented by people, but I think my parents had this sense that like, we might at some point return, which I kind of felt almost became like a dream of something impossible, like a dream of something impossible, you know? When it comes to this question of healing, I think most of my essay, I think I told Darren early on, I think I wanna write about healing. Cause actually for me, 
I don't even believe in this phrase nation building. I think it's a really problematic term, but I, I believe in communities and I believe in building communities. And I believe that within a thing called a nation or a country, I'm interested in how the relationship between individual healing and particularly that is trauma informed, particularly living under systems that are violent to the point of, you know, obscenity, you know, the violence of, of, of structural racism, the violence of patriarchy, the violence of capitalism, the violence of war, the violence of the military industrial complex. We're all living under these systems and affected and impacted to differing degrees. And I suppose for me, I can't begin to understand that. I can't begin to understand the violence of what's happened to Iraq. And of course, yeah, we're in March and we're experiencing this appalling, these appalling atrocities in the Ukraine. And it really, it, it, it really makes it clear which lives on this planet matter and, and whose don't. You know, I think, I think as appalling as these atrocities are, there is this overwhelming sense of how brazen our racism is in terms of valuing lives and not valuing others, uh, valuing, you know, the lives of Ukrainians, not valuing the lives of Yemenis who, or Syrians for that matter, who were bombed into oblivion by the Russians. So those contradictions are constantly in the background. And I think when it comes to like, what are the solutions? I think probably what the essay and also where I'm coming from strongly is I'm not sure if we can build stable, secure, communities or nations that really value the dignity of human life. I mean, all of these systems are about trashing the dignity of human life. And largely the colonial project is one of treating people as a means, treating their bodies, treating their land, treating their resources, treating their histories, treating their cultures as a means to someone else's gain. And how we unravel centuries of that trauma and pain I don't know. But what I do know is that I don't think we can begin to do that work if we do not have a reckoning with ourselves, if we do not take ourselves on journeys, which mean that we are valuing and fighting for space for the individual healing that needs to happen. I'd argue there are some real pitfalls with that as well. So a kind of new agey reading of that would be, hey, I just need to work on myself and the world and, you know, you know, political strife will magically fall into place. And I mean, that's deeply problematic and is the voice clearly of privilege, right? If you feel like sitting on the side of a mountain or on a retreat is just going to solve the world's problems because I'm, I'm taking care of myself and that's naturally going to, you know, transmit out into the, into the ether. And I think what the essay in some ways for me as it as it kind of unfolded was a way to create the spaciousness to listen to the felt to listen to feelings to listen to the confusion in my own mind and heart to listen to kind of grief I felt was I talk about at some point like de describing the home I'm living in now my adopted home of Wales puts me in touch with this grief of the home I left and the past of that and that that sense of creating spaciousness for us to feel is I think the platform from which we can create space to imagine other possibilities. Um, so in that sense, it's a deeply personal take on how do we build foundations to, to move forward that are deeply connected to self, um, but with a really vast vision of transformation and what that can be. Darren, uh, your piece is one of a number that looks at race in the book. Can you just talk us through your essay? I mean, I think obviously it's called whatever happened to the black boy of Calais. And, and I guess the, the thing people are focused on is that pub sign that, that anyone in Swansea will remember if they if they were around in the 70s that hung outside there and the fact that it disappeared and got replaced with another one. 
what I think I was trying to do and uh, was write about memory and the, the role of memory and identity. I start the essay with a you know a Dylan Thomas quote, which I realize is a bit of a cliche if you're writing about Swansea, but it seemed to fit this the memories of childhood of no order and no end. And I guess I on one way, and I I'm gonna say this and run the risk of sounding pretentious. In one way, I thought what I was trying to do was what Dylan Thomas does writing about his Swansea childhood, this sort of nostalgic remembrance. And I'm doing that to some extent because you know I have really fond memories of, of growing up in Swansea. But at the same time, these certain things keep interrupting me. The, the pub sign, the fact that uh, literally my next door neighbor racially abused me at the age of seven with, with such hate in his eyes that I'd just never seen for, from another person before. And, and, and thinking how that black boy and, and him calling me you know, a, a racial slur beginning with black begins my sort of questioning about what, it, what my individual identity is, as well as those sort of questions about collective identity. So I also wax lyrical about my time, you know, going to the Vetchfield under, under John Toshak and, and those sort of, I mean, some of the greatest moments in my life, seeing the Swans uh, in the first division. Um, but at the same time, just those moments of racism that, that erupt from the, the crowd and that that crowd is a crowd I feel very much part of. You know, I'm a Swansea City fan to this day. And yet there are these moments where, where racism is, is expressed and no one's calling it out. I talk about more recent times at, at Wembley where someone starts chanting, I'd rather wear a turban than the rose. And you've got this interesting, you know, sort of national and racial hierarchy thing going on. But again, the, the turban reminds me back to that black boy pub sign. And I guess to, to uh, South Asia and my Asian heritage. Um, so that's all me <laughs> identity. But I think there's also the, the Swansea identity of, OK, you know, the grounds at White Rock. It was called White Rock before it got Liberty. That's where the copper works were. Swansea was Copperopolis. Uh, Chris Evans, uh, Dr. Chris Evans talks about at one point, two thirds of the population of Swansea was, was employed related to the, the copper industry. Uh, and, and this whole rebranding, we've got Copper Bay now and, and you know, Swansea's really embracing that history. But what's missing from that, as far as I can see, is any connection with how those copper ingots were used as currency so as I say, you know, black boys were bought with copper smelted at White Rock. Uh, and that's not to suddenly go, oh, and therefore all of Swansea is a terrible place. But it's, it's to suggest that now, even when we're remembering about Copperopolis, we're being very selective on what we're remembering. Uh, the philosopher Charles Mills, who I've, I think Marvin in, in his essay quotes, uses the phrase, the management of memory. And there seems to be a particular way that we we use memory uh, to remember certain things that might make us feel better. And I'm sure Martin's got far more uh, nuanced things to say about the way history gets used as a way of sort of bolstering an, a national self-esteem. And other parts of history get diminished because they, they don't make us feel good about ourselves. Like we're, we're, the, we're you know, we're the, the good guys and all this. But so all that sort of remembrance, the, the fact that no one in, in the Calais pub knows why there was uh, that sign, nobody knows why the pubs call the black boy. Theories abound as they do for all black boy pubs. And yet there are people who say, we must preserve this. We must keep on to our heritage. But you only have to push them with what exactly are you preserving? Can you remember anything? 
to realise just what a thin argument that is. So, yeah, I'm left with that sort of sense of haunting that I think a few people bring up. We remember the Vetchfield. Swansea City fans, every game will will sing about the Vetchfield, uh, which is long gone. So some things that disappear get remembered. Uh, other things get forgotten. And I kind of just wanted to, to I guess, uh, reflect on that rather than deliver a, a, a strident argument about it. Yeah, you, you have got quite a nice way of summing it up. Uh, in or You quote someone in the, in the piece which says, well, while we're trying to reach new highs, we shouldn't forget old lows, um, which I thought really summed up the, the piece really nicely and the kind of theme of the piece. I was actually fascinated by this. I'm not a student of history by any means. So I, I, some of those old lows include some of the stories about why there are so many pubs called the black boy in places like wales i wonder if you could just explore some of those theories that you pick up in your essay um, because the, i thought i thought they were genuinely fascinating and you'll know which one really blew my mind is the is the one about connecting to royalty which i had no idea about that was a very interesting one so would you would you be able to explain a little bit about where the theories of the black boy name come from so I think I think the most common one is that the Black Boy pubs are na either named after a, a local enslaved uh, black person, African person, African diasporic person, or just a part of the sort of general trend that was about of uh, if you are advertising coffee or any so-called exotic, you know, high status product, you would use imagery of black people. And what, what, what was so captivating for me about that sign was this, this was not a black boy who was clearly downtrodden and oppressed. He was he was dressed in finery. And at, at, at the time, as a kid, I thought, I wonder whether he himself is royalty. Uh, and then looking at uh, David Olashoga's work, et cetera, it, it, it transpires that there was for wealthy people. This is what they did to their their servants and their enslaved people. They dressed them up in their finery because it, 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 it just made them look all the more impressive. But the, the King Charles II one, there, there, there is a bunch of actual, you know, historical stuff around King Charles sometimes being referred to as the black boy uh, across the sea. I think he was uh, in, in hiding at some point. Again, I'm, I'm looking to Martin for, for uh, help here. But, but also that there, there was a letter and I'm pretty sure, yeah, that his mother wrote something about he is so, when he was just after he's born, she wrote to someone saying he is so dark skinned. Uh, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, he's so dark that I'm embarrassed to take him anywhere. But so so the, the in some of the, the work that's gone on, some of the sort of pub historians have said, oh, it's nothing to do with enslavement. It's King Charles. But then when you look at King Charles II, well, actually, he was linked to the slave trade. So whichever way you whichever way you approach this, you still have to factor in the, the, the British Empire, including Wales, which is, of course, one of the things that people get a bit uh, funny about sometimes, wanting to see the British Empire as, uh, you know, solely an English enterprise, that, that, that Britain, yeah, was, was involved in this, that this is how this iconography came about. And yet, as I say, even contacting librarians, there's no real clear story emerging about exactly why that pub in Calais was called the Black Boy. The coal mining story, I don't think has a lot of credence. Um, and it certainly wouldn't explain how there are Black Boy pubs all over the UK where there are never coal mines anywhere, you know, uh, within any sort of uh, distance. 
uh, just to just to finish the last question on on this piece, I, I thought it was really interesting. You you mentioned, of course, there's a famous black boy pub in Carnarvon, and you talk a little bit about like the owner's perspective on whether they should rebrand or change the name and such. And he's his response was, no, this is what it's called. This has been here for as it is, and we should hold on to that. Whether you know we change the context ourselves as time moves forwards in the current period or not i was wondering what you, how you feel about that and how you feel about some of these um revisions to original names or kind of old long-standing names and what you think particularly in the pub which is a really ordinary and i you know in this context you can probably use ordinary in the raymond williams sense a culturally ordinary kind of place uh, and what that kind of means for how we see ourselves as you know people from Swansea or people from Carnarvon or people from South Wales, North Wales or plain old Wales? Well, I guess the Calais pub sign, and I've been in touch with the the, the sign artists uh, since writing. As I said, I think you could say it's, it's like some of uh, Hogarth's work. This is, this is art that is depicting a time of racism, but the image itself doesn't, at least to my eyes, feel like a racist caricature. Now, I haven't been to the pub in Carnarvon, but I have seen photos of it. And some of the images I saw on the wall, to my eyes, are fairly unambiguously racist caricatures. So that's, that's a difference. And, and I pick up on that pub because it was voted uh, in 2016 as, quote, the Welshest pub in the world. So, so when the landlord says, you know, this is our heritage, I guess the question I ask in the essay is, well, perhaps racist caricatures are part of, quote unquote, our heritage. And what do we do with that? Certainly when I was in the pub in Calais, you know, I, I live in, in Whitechapel in the east of London. It feels really funny to me when I go to Swansea, people go, are you going to the Black Boy? And they're referring to a pub. When I was in the pub, I was very, very aware of the absence of any black people, of any people of color. Uh, and seeing, you know, the person who was waiting on our table with a shirt reading Black Boy, it just felt odd. And it just felt so, so weird. As I said, it's almost like this, this white, young white woman has been misidentified. It, it feels strange. I'm not sure what, what's to be gained by keeping the name. But, I, you know, I'm, I don't feel, I mean, I was invited onto the one show at one point to do this big, let's have a heated debate about Black Boy pubs. I guess I think if our interest is, is racial justice and in racial justice in South Wales, we'd be better uh, spending our time looking at the police than, than uh, the, the names of pubs. There are more urgent things. But that doesn't mean that I think that there's nothing problematic about the, the pub name or, or the pub signs. Quite a lot of history already covered um, in, in the pod tonight. And uh, Martin kind of links us into you, you know, history, of course. Um, focus the focus of your essay one i could draw lots of bits and pieces out from my uh, history background but are you able to just give us a quick run through on what you brought to the to the book with your essay yeah mine's maybe a bit of a different tone because it's a lot less personal maybe it would have been a more interesting essay had i had i kind of put myself into it but for me the, my essay is about kind of the pros and cons of history. I mean, obviously, as someone who's employed to teach history in a university, I, I believe history is important. Um, and if you look at the history of Wales, history has been very important in sustaining a Welsh identity. 
you know, given all the problems that, 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 that Wales has had, history gave people something almost like positive to, um, to draw upon. Um, stories of kind of when Wales was independent, um, a very clear sense that Wales was different to England, had a distinct culture, a distinct language. In the absence of many traditional markers of nationality, history was reassuring. It told the Welsh that they were not just a nation, but an important nation as well. You know, the, the owners of, of Britain, if you like, the true Britons, you know, the English were these interlopers who'd come over after, after the Romans and taken their island, and the Welsh were the true Britons, um, and therefore, you know, the true inheritors of the British Empire, monarchy, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So history has been really important in, in Wales, but it's also been problematic at different levels because although you can kind of selectively tell a story of Wales that's very positive, the story of Wales is also a story of defeat, you know, even Owen Glendur. Um, you know, although people take refuge in the fact that he was never caught, you know, and you can tell the story as this great rebellion and uprising against English rule. He lost, you know, and he lost resoundedly. So, you know, there aren't there aren't these kind of romantic heroes in Welsh history in the way that there sometimes are in Irish or Scottish history. I mean, one one Welsh historian in the 1920s said there's no Welsh William Wallace, because William Wallace also lost. Um, but 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 maybe the Welsh heroes lose more more convincingly. Um, so, so history has been kind of problematic in that way, in the sense that it somehow suggests that Wales's best days were in the past. It's also problematic in the sense that sometimes it gets caught up with race in the sense that people talk about Wales being a Celtic nation, which is doesn't make any any sense historically. You know, the Celts are, are really in many ways a Victorian invention. You know, regardless of things like that, if you build your national identity on the past, where does that leave people who have moved in not just yesterday, but, you know, 10 years ago, a generation ago, two generations ago, if, 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 if being Welsh is about history, you know, that creates awkward questions for, for the present, you know, not least for people like me, whose own family history is kind of complicated and, and certainly not, not, you know, rooted in Wales convincingly. So history, I think, is problematic. It also is problematic in the sense that I think sometimes it puts a chip on our shoulder that somehow it's created this sense of uncertainty, that we worry so much about being Welsh. We forget that other nations go through the same thing. We worry about every slight on social media. We worry about when someone that we never heard of says something stupid about the Welsh language. And we, you know, we lack a certain sense of kind of, of confidence about ourselves. And I think that's problematic as well. So for me, my essay was, was, was about, you know, let's embrace our history, let's be proud of our history, but also realize that there are things in it that are unpleasant that we need to kind of face up to, you know, um, you know, the complicity of Welsh people within slavery, you know, a long, deep embedded history of racism, you know, massive social and economic inequalities. There are things that we need to kind of fa face up to and not blame on other people, because as soon as you blame it on other people, you're almost like taking away responsibility to do something about it today. You know, if and if we argue that kind of whether we're talking about racism or class inequality, that somehow it's the English fault, somehow it's some somebody else's fault somewhere else, then that's problematic because it also means that the solution is somebody else's. And if we, you know, if we think of ourselves as an oppressed people, whatever that means, 
it's remind it, it's taking away from the fact that we have power today and that actually we we heard earlier about you know the importance of kind of healing and kind of looking forward to the future in in a positive way and we'll never do that we'll never take control um, of our own collective destiny unless we realize that actually you know we do have power we are a democracy we things are the way they are because people have voted for them to be the way they are if people voted differently um, and demanded more of their parties, including the ruling governing Labour Party. And if we demanded more radical answers from our politicians, we'd, we, we'd get them. We, we get the politicians that we vote for. So for me, the one lesson of history is that people can change things. Nothing is the way it is because of any inevitability. Historical processes have played out. The Welsh had power in the past and they have power in the present. And if they use that power in the present, they can create a better future. You, you talk a lot about here and you've written literally written books about it the tricky relationship we have with England and it often feels to me that the Welsh identity is often defined by difference and I think that's even mentioned in, in your piece that the idea that to be Welsh is to be British but defined slightly by difference to England and I, I just wonder whether that's that's a sign of sort of a sense of fragility about who we are as a people and maybe that we're we're not even historically a coherent people and actually we don't have to me it feels like that a lot of our insecurities come from not having that foundation of statehood that you mentioned earlier whether that's actually important and and how important it is to a people's sense of self i think there's two things there there's yes a lot of our insecurity and, and past and present comes from not having a state. A lot of how we define Wales is about a sense of difference, but that isn't unique. Um, you know, the French have defined themselves against the Germans in many ways. The Canadians define themselves against the Americans. You know, this is a common way of how identity works. I mean, Britain itself, a sense of Britishness was forged out of four different nations by a sense of difference to Catholic France. Um, you know, the kind of the Napoleonic Wars of the early 19th century were really important in forging Britishness. A great historian called Linda Colley says we decide who we are by reference by what, by who we're not, by reference to who we're not. But it's the, in Wales, it's the combination. It's the combination of having a large neighbour who we define ourselves against, just as many nations do, with the fact that we don't have the state. That's, you know, created this insecurity. Defining yourself against someone else doesn't mean that you have to be insecure. That's just how, that's how all identities work. You know, it's a relational concept. One of the areas which I do want to cover is an area which I'm not so familiar with in my Welshness, and it's the, the creative and cultural aspects of music, song and dance in Wales. There are essays in the book that look at those. And I think they are incredibly important aspects of Welshness for many people, and they perhaps don't get the, the coverage that they deserve. Um, Rabab, do you think that's a fair kind of summation of how we treat those kind of aspects? I think it can be. Yeah, I, th I think one of the, the, the struggles is being seen as separate, I think, in Wales in terms of our, our cultural landscapes and simply not getting the exposure. I'm just thinking of London. I'm just thinking of the art world in London, for example, you know, it's deeply London centric, deeply focused in and on itself in so many ways, you know. Um, and I think there are problematics and there, there, there are challenges around how 
visible, the visibility of the cultural landscape in Wales, I think that's also shifting and changing. Um, and there's kind of obvious examples of that, you know, um, I don't know, the, the exposure that something like the um, visual arts platform, you know, exhibition uh, every two years, something like Artist Mundi, which kind of brings, kind of puts Wales on the map, inverted commas, in an interesting way by bringing a lot of really renowned international artists from many cultures and backgrounds. Um, I, I also think that's shifting. I think it's shifting. And I think partly it comes from, Something that Martin, I suppose, was was touching on this idea of where does that confidence come from and how do we develop that confidence and how do we develop that cultural confidence, not on the terms of England, for example. I mean, how do we simply develop that confidence in and of ourselves? And I think that is a process. I think also there's something about that sense of conviction in what the possibilities are in a, in a small nation and I don't just mean culturally what the possibilities are um, but I think one of the things we have done historically particularly perhaps culturally is look to England or look to cultural organizations or look to the cultural landscape of England and go okay we have to sort of somehow replicate or you know keep up with that in some way um, and I actually think one of the benefits of being small is we are we have the capacity to be nimbler and we have the capacity to shift and work with change in a more dynamic way. And we can see some of that if you think about some of the legislation around future generations. And I'm not saying all of that is perfect, but you know, there, there is there is a sense of capacity to shift and change and, and, and make quite radical changes or aspirations for the future. But I think perhaps much harder for England, you know, the, the levels of sheer weight and layering of kind of institutional backdrops in its history, um, I think are possibly harder to break in a way. Um, so I think there's something about us developing that confidence, which is perhaps um, instead of kind of looking at some kind of uh, what's what, how to, how, you know, how to be ahead of the curve, if you like, I think we can often just completely bypass that curve. And, and actually really think about what what is what is cutting edge by our own standards you know how do we have a, a sense of conviction in what we're producing and it's complex and I think this set of essays speaks to those complexities that is where I hope increasingly we're moving and I think one of the things that's great about our cultural landscape is just how much crossover there is and how much historically there has been crossover within our cultural landscape. And I think we're seeing that more and more across different art forms, across different voices. People are working in different disciplines and producing a very kind of nuanced voice within that. Darren, Martin, did you want to pick up on anything of that kind of cultural artistic aspect that flows through the book? I think it was just a great reminder that there's some really good writers in Wales. I mean, I don't, I don't mean my chapter, but there are some <laughs> there are some wonderfully entertaining pieces in it. I mean, there's there's a great chapter by Joe Dunthorn, who's such a brilliant novelist, um, and it's funny as well. You know, these these topics can be really serious and and really heavy, but you can actually say really quite profound things. You know, with a smile on your face and with a sense of humour. And and Joe's chapter, I think, really does that. So, you know, in, in a way, this book itself is a kind of, you know, is an artistic statement, um, you know, and I, I think the editor should be really proud of it. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Martin. Um, but I, yeah, I do think, I mean, that you know, the, there's the quote often attributed to Toni Morrison of, you know, write the book you, you want to read. 
Uh, and every time I'm I'm back in Wales, you know, I do go into the bookshops and I do look at particular Welsh content books. And I guess that I was looking for a book that would show the, the diversity of Wales and that would be contemporary and that would perhaps have some history, but wouldn't be, you know, a historical book written for historians. And I think this collection does try and do some of that stuff. It does try and play with the form as well, which obviously, you know, doesn't get picked up as much as the content. Uh, Gary Raymond's uh, Choose Your Own Adventure style story, Rabab's uh, letters, uh, emails. There, there, there's some very personal writing. There's some far more sort of academic writing. Uh, there's stuff that tries to to combine the two, Marvin's poetry. And I think I think something that, that Martin said earlier about this sort of uncertainty, I guess my, if, if I have a discipline, it's sort of uh, philosophy and, and, and this idea of sort of staying with with uncertainty and entering into dialogue and being open to difference, to new ideas. I think the book tries to sort of promote that with, and I'm sure people will say, well, it hasn't got a clear argument. You know, it isn't strident enough. It, you know, there are people who will see that as a weakness. We personally saw it as a strength that, the, you know, the social media stuff and the, the blog posts, everyone's got an exact position that they're hammering home. But I think there's space for for creative and, and imaginative work that sort of doesn't try and add to the, the frenetic pace of, of the, that kind of discourse, but says, OK, let's just try and imagine things otherwise and, and, and take take some time here. And and I think that's part of having a rich cultural sector. Uh, and it's something that I think it's important that Wales has. It doesn't just have people who are, you know, clearly politically aligned and, and sort of doing that sort of politically driven art, which is not to say I don't think there's a, a need for that work, but that exploring the ambiguities and the complexities is an important thing. And it takes a certain cultural confidence, but I think it can also help develop that cultural confidence as well. That, that leads nicely on to, to my final question. I was just going to note that the, the book is published by Repeater Books and in their mission statement at the uh, end of the book, they say that Repeater Books is dedicated to the creation of a new reality. The landscape of 21st century arts and letters is faded and inert, riven by fashionable cynicism, egotistical self-reference and nostalgia for the recent past. Our desire is to publish in every sphere and genre combining vigorous dissent and pragmatic willingness to succeed where messianic abstraction and quiescent co-option have stalled. Abstention is not an option. We are alive and we don't agree. And I was just wondering that though, that those are bombastic words from repeated books there. And I was just wondering how you see this book fitting in with that mission statement. Clearly, uh, repeater are uh, a radical press. We had a, what we thought was a clear idea. We were talking to as many publishers as possible. And meeting with Tarek Goddard, who, who runs Repeater and who sort of set it up with the late Mark Fisher, very quickly, Tarek's a straight talker, I mean, as, as that sort of writing indicates, and very quickly got a sense of this is someone we can, we can work with. His first sort of question was, to me, was like, why are you doing a book about Wales? Uh, and I sort of talked about, you know, how I felt about Wales and how I felt about Welshness. And, and I think the way he put it is, oh, so, so Welshness is something you've chosen. Uh, you're exactly the right person to, to do a book like this, which, you know, would, I mean, people might take issue with. But I thought it was an interesting way of looking at this. We were concerned with whether we would be you know, political enough. And there was a lot of talk about the cover. Originally, we had ideas of using, you know, a sort of a collage of, of uh, the Welsh blanket 
to, to bring about this idea of plurality. And I think Tarek's words were, that looks like a knitting book. Uh, and if you look at the repeater covers, they are usually rather edgy and clearly left-wing and slightly macho, some might say. So I was kind of pleased where we arrived with the cover. And, and again, something that was traditional, perhaps not stereotypically Welsh, but traditionally Welsh, and that was itself a collage and then remixed. Um, but yeah, I think Repeater just had the vision for the book, believed that we could do it. And, and they were very much, I mean, we were very much the editors, the four of us. It was up to us to edit the content. It was completely in our hands. Sometimes with these anthologies, you get sort of people who are named editors and then you get someone at the, the publisher who's actually doing a lot of the editing. But it wasn't like that. They had complete faith in us once that, once that meeting happened. And it is, yeah, I mean, people have picked up, it's an English publisher uh, and Richard King's Brittle with Relics is, uh, is also an English publisher. And I met today with Matt Brown, who's uh, edited The Mab which is uh, a retelling of the Mabinogi that Hanan and I have contributed. And again, they went with Unbound, an English publisher. Um, I don't think there's anything too deep to read into that, but I do think that there's, I mean, the good thing is that English publishers might be interested in Welsh content, um, but it's also about having that aspiration to believe that, you know, if you, if you put your heart and soul into writing something, you want to make sure the publisher helps it to reach an audience. And uh, touch wood, that seems to be working. Martin says in his piece, in Wales, we need to move beyond the fixation of wrongs endured, both real and imagined. Everyone needs to think about how we can do things better. And um, part of what here I, the podcast and the writing, what we're trying to do is to look to do things better. We're looking to widen that civic and political engagement. Before we go, can I ask the three of you, you know, not just on this, S, the, the book of essays, but you know, is there anything you think we should be doing in Wales to make things better? Martin, can I come to you first? Devolve government from Cardiff to councils. Take the environment more seriously. The global global warming crisis is very, very real and will mean future generations judge us in the way that we judge the 19th century and their attitudes to slavery. They'll say, what were you doing while the world was burning, arguing about a tiny little corner of the earth? answer. Baba, have you got anything? Not sure how to top that. <laughs> um, I suppose I, I would add, just to place underneath that, that um, how do we not become exhausted by the work before us, the, the, the political work, the work of social justice, because it is overwhelming, you know, that sense of how do we not become overwhelmed? And I suppose in order to build that kind of vision in that trajectory that Martin was talking about. How do we also do the work of radical self-care at grassroots community levels that enable us to feel that in the process of trying to bring these realities about that, that I mean, I think the, the task in this century is essentially to steward ourselves, you know, uh, to safe ground, you know, as a, as a species, as humanity, you know. Um, and how do we how do we do that? How do we play our part in that in Wales? And I I think uh, you know I always like to kind of underpin the political project with the, with the personal. And how are we how are we taking care of ourselves? How are we doing the work of grief? We've come out of a pandemic, but that way before that pandemic, that pandemic is an effect of many other destructive causes, if you like. How do we steward ourselves 
together? How do we heal together? How do we face the work of grief? How do we face the work of trauma? In order to feel we have the energy and the solidarity to do this vital, um, vast work of transforming the, tra the trajectory that humanity are on. Darren, how would you make things better? Oh gosh, I'm not sure I could do as well as as Martin and Rabab there. Um, I I guess going back to that management of memory quote is is let's really think about the the many ways that plurality in Wales has been ignored, overseen, uh, kept out of the story, uh, and let's attend to that uh, in what we do going forward. The other thing, I mean, I really like Mike Parker's essay, Medium Rare, in which he begins, the Wales I want is a deeply ordinary country. It's not often you hear people write about a country in that way, and yet write with such passion. Um, and I think I think Wales looking at what other small countries are doing uh, politically and culturally, uh, and not only looking across the border, might be a, a useful exercise. And I think that's happening to some extent with works that goes on in translation, particularly between Welsh language and some uh, European languages. Um, but I think I think there's more to be done there. But then, of course, you know, I'm interested in 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 Wales, but also in the world. Uh, and 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 in Wales is in in looking at Wales, but looking Wales looking outwards into the world and not just, as I say, across the border. Fantastic. And it just forced me uh, then to say thank you to our panel of guests. Um, the book, once again, is the beautifully covered uh, Welsh plural essays on the future of Wales. Um, and our th to our three guests, uh, Darren, uh, Martin and Rabab, um, I wonder if you have a, an online presence, be that on Twitter or on a website or something that you would like to plug if people are, have enjoyed listening to you and would like to find out more about what you have to say. I wonder if I can start with Rabab. Oh, I suppose, um, am I at Rabab Razul, I think, on Twitter? And Gentle Radical uh, on Twitter and Facebook and all the usual places and Instagram. Yeah, you can find us there. Fantastic. Thank you, Martin. Um, at Martin Johns on Twitter. Fantastic. And Darren. Just to say, Rabab's far too modest to mention, but Gentle Radical were nominated for the 2021 Turner Prize. Uh, which is quite an achievement. There, there was a silent applause going on here. That's nice. Uh, my, my Twitter handle is at Rap Classroom, R-A-P Classroom, as you'd expect to spell it, at Rap Classroom. Are you allowed to tell us the story behind that now, or will it take too long? It won't take too long. Uh, my work in education involved using hip-hop in different forms, uh, and uh, I think the handle hip-hop education or hip-hop teacher have been taken, so I went with Rap Classroom. Well, you learn something new every day. That's fascinating. Kerry, can you tell us about why you're Kerry the Viking on Twitter? When you, when you have to be anonymous on Twitter, a nice uh, anagram of your name uh, works wonders, doesn't it? Very good. Thank you very much, Mr. The Viking. Uh, if you've enjoyed listening to the pod this evening, you can find out more from Hiraith at Hiraith Pod on both Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, please do like and subscribe in your podcast player of choice. Thank you for listening to Hiraith. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review.